Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Ros Taylor. On today's show, we'll be talking about Britain's justice system. It's not just the prisons that are the problem, no matter how much we've heard about the Wandsworth breakout. Plus, the UK is rejoining the Horizon programme. Hooray, etc. Is this a sign of bigger things to come? And what's it like to make political comedy in miserable times? Let's meet the panel. Matt Green is a comedian and Twitter sensation, as well as a regular on our sister podcast, Paper Cuts. Hi, Matt. Hello. Liz Truss is writing a... <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Liz Truss is writing a book, 10 Years to Save the West. The publisher's blurb suggests this will be less of a memoir, which is probably just as well, I mean, given 40-whatever days it was, and more of a polemic. What can we expect? Well, yeah, it's called 10 Years to Save the West. Should really be probably more honestly called 10 days in which I broke the economy. And I just find Liz Truss so extraordinary. She blames all of her problems. She continues to do this. Uh, she blames all of her problems on the left-wing economic establishment, which I just think is such a bizarre suggestion, as though, I don't know, the head of the IMF is walking around every day going, ooh, Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> it's absolutely stupid. Saying the left-wing economic establishment is like saying the right-wing union movement or the cuddly Wagner group uh, or the brilliant idea from Elon Musk. But she, she did an interview with the Mail to promote this. And she said, there was one thing I, I, um, I thought was interesting. She said, uh, it was wrong to remove Boris Johnson as prime minister, which I do agree with her in one sense, uh, because it brought her to become prime minister. Um, and, and also she said that she admits that she had the right plan, but had problems with execution and communication, which oh. is a bit like saying a football manager had the right tactics, except when it comes to defending or scoring. Was it all Quas's fault then? I think he. they have not spoken, apparently. They haven't spoken. So that's a, the end of a lovely relationship. It's the end of a lovely relationship. I, I realise this is Matt's question rather than mine, uh, but I have a feature out this week in the New Statesman on the Trussites, what they think went wrong, the stories they're telling themselves and what they plan to do next. And uh, you can hear Quasi's perspective in, in, in that. But yes, I don't think relations between the two of them are particularly cosy at the moment. Although they're like next door neighbours in Greenwich. They live very close to each other. So that must be very awkward. I mean, I've lived close to people who I haven't spoken to for years. So I think that's fine. Is one of them Liz Truss? Uh, but it could be. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a great way to introduce Rachel Cunliffe, Associate Political Editor at the New Statesman. Hello. Hello. Westminster is agog today with the claim that a parliamentary researcher was working as a Chinese spy, though he does deny it. I guess you would, wouldn't you? Has this come as a shock? I think so. So I have just moved from the, the New Statesman HQ, as it were, into the lobby, and I had to get my security pass for that. And so many people told me, oh, it will take months, like, you know, you might not get it for years in time for the next election. Um, I actually got mine pretty quickly, it was over the summer break, but it's quite comprehensive, the, the kind of the stuff they ask you. And that's the same security process for anyone working in Parliament, like whether they're a researcher or whether they're kind of working in catering or security or, or any of it. And you kind of think that's the point of it, isn't it? The, the point of it is to try and like weed out people who might be spying for China, although, as you say, he he, he does deny it. So it's kind of that's one aspect of it that's kind of quite shocking. Why is our security so lax? Um, also, though, just he has been named and well, I'm not going to name him here, but he just reminds me of every parliamentary researcher I've ever met in Parliament. Like the 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 education, the background, the the attitude. Apparently, he he matched with a Sun journalist on Hinge, and they nearly went off on a date. And it's like Parliament is this very. 
cosy, incestuous kind of community. And he seems a person who would fit in exactly. So my, my second question would be, if he is a Chinese spy, how many other of these guys are also? And, and have we been underestimating the skill of Chinese spying if this guy really is such a fantastic fit with, with, <laughs> with Parliament? They've clearly got it, got it made if he is. I mean, they know exactly who to put in there. Yeah, yeah we'd n- never suspect someone like that. Uh, Some Tory MPs, though not all, are very hawkish towards China, and the researcher had links to some of them through his work. But not everyone in the party, or indeed the Foreign Office, is hostile towards China, are they? No, there's this kind of big internal battle going on within the Conservative Party about attitudes to China. And on the one hand, you've got the China Hawks, Ian Duncan Smith, uh, Alicia Kearns, and he actually worked as a researcher for her, uh, which is a little bit worrying. Um, and, And they're saying we have to be much, much tougher. There's too much Chinese influence on everything, our universities, our infrastructure, our tech, our um, energy supply, like all of it. Um, and then you've got the Rishi Sunak approach, which I think is described as robust pragmatism, which broadly goes like China's the second biggest player in the world, the joint biggest, depending on how you want to measure it. We can't just ignore them and say we're not going to engage, which is fine. But it does seem that when he does engage, when his government does engage, they don't do so much of the challenging aspect of it. James Cleverly went on a, a trip to China over the summer and there was a lot of criticisms about that like within the Conservative Party. Not necessarily that he was going, but that he was going and not really asking for anything in return, not being tough enough. And I, I, I guess that the Sunak feeling is, is kind of, there is no money. Some of the money is coming from the Chinese. Why would we do anything to rock the boat and to disturb that? So a big, a big internal battle in the party coming there. There was an Intelligence and Security Committee report out, wasn't there as well, which was uh, very critical and basically said that China was was trying to impose its worldview, you know, on the and its its values on the rest of the world, and that didn't get much play at the time. I'm always fascinated by what the ISC does because it sort of operates very much in the shadows. All its hearings are, you know, in secret, and and it releases these reports. But that did create some a, a bit of a buzz of worry, didn't it, among the among the uh, among uh, quite a, quite a few people in parliament i think what worries them is that it, there are so many different angles of influence so some of it is potentially spying some of it is stuff in the tech i mean there was the whole mp's shouldn't have tiktok on their phone i'm too old for tiktok so i don't have it anyway um but then you get things like secret chinese police stations and donations to various parties and once you start to look at it holistically you kind of go oh actually there are quite a lot of roots of, of influence there, but no real appetite to to deal with it on a on a full scale level. Mm, a bit similar to Russia not so long ago. Very. And that went great. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> but I think we you know we most of us know which side we're on now with Russia. Since the terror suspect Daniel Khalif escaped from HMP Wandsworth last week, we've seen an unusual amount of attention paid to prisons. He's back in jail after a four-day manhunt, but on Sunday, another inmate at Wandsworth was stabbed. All is not well in our justice system, and it's not just prisons. The shortage of courts has led to a backlog of nearly 63,000 criminal cases, and that's been rising since even before the pandemic in 2018. 
Matt, what are the facts about prison escapes? How many lags do manage to make it outside, albeit briefly? Well, apparently very few these days. Um, Since the late 90s, where there were quite a lot, there were sort of 80s and 60s and 70s uh, per year, um, numbers have actually come down. And there's actually a helpful map on the Ministry of Justice website that allows you to check if there's been an escape in your area, uh, although sadly not in real time. Which would be fun. <laughs> I mean, you could see the prisoner on the map. Um, but yeah, it's actually that's something that has. Um, if you look at the graph, it's gone very much down, and, and the last two or three years has been almost numb. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's why there was just so much attention paid to mm. to the escape this weekend as well. It is getting rarer and rarer. But also, I think it had that slight kind of movie feel to it, as yeah. someone strapping themselves under a van. It felt quite sort of Ocean's Eleven. Yes, it did, and I believe he was uh, he was spotted by someone in a park in Chiswick where he was complimenting them on their dog. <laughs> Which was, yeah, unexpected. It's the most British thing ever. I know, yeah. And he had a bag of Waitrose shopping. So, (laughs) you know, it didn't feel like he was really trying very hard to not be found. Yeah. Rory Stewart, who used to be a prisons minister, has described Britain's jails as horrifying Mm -hmm. and shameful. What has the government tried to do about them since 2010? Well... Um, I think since 2010 is the problem because uh, there was a study by the University of Bristol last year which found that austerities had a very, very damaging effect on prison, huge funding cuts. And it's, it's weird, isn't it? I, I don't think I've ever seen a study saying that austerities had a great impact on anything, possibly food banks in terms of numbers. Um, but there's very, yeah, the, there's, there's huge concern. Um, a prison inspector said that more than a third of prisons in England and Wales are rated as a concern or serious concern last year. Two thirds of prisons are categorised as overcrowded. 80% of prisoners at Wandsworth are in crowded cells. And there was a stat I read this week, which I thought was fascinating, which is as of last week, there were just 896 available places in prison across the whole of England and Wales. So one, you know, big fight and they will be full, which um, just is is insane. And there's very big staff shortages. They're recruiting less experienced staff since austerity because they used to recruit people from, um, you know, the military and places like that. And now it's much more people pretty much straight out of school, so they have less experience, they're more easily exploited, there's more possibility of corruption and stuff. So yeah, it does feel like um, since 2010, things have gone in a very bad direction. Tough on crime used to be a Tory mantra, really. And then Tony Blair added tough on the causes of crime in the 2000s as well. But why is a party like the Tories with with notoriously hardline home secretaries like Priti Patel and now Suella Bravman, why is it struggling with this issue, Rachel? Austerity aside. I don't think you can put austerity completely aside. Like the MOJ budget has been cut by 40% since 2010 and that's massive. And the thing with austerity is they they ring-fenced, they said they ring-fenced the NHS and basically everything else had to take the cuts. And it's very difficult to make the case for prison funding when you're looking at things like hospital beds or teachers in classrooms because who cares about prisoners, right? Um, but what you do when you you don't fund it and the numbers keep increasing is you get these terrible conditions, as Matt said, and it's a security risk as well. And that's like to do with the justice system as a whole. I think in this country, we, we say we're proud of our justice system. We say that, you know, British justice like a cornerstone of our civilization, but we don't fund it properly. And you mentioned the court's backlog earlier. Um, the government really, really tries to make this out, that it's all about COVID because the court's closed and, you know, who could have seen COVID coming? It's not their fault. In January, before COVID, it was over a year for cases to, to come to court. That was sort of the average. And obviously it's got a lot worse, but that was 
a direct result of cuts there. So you've got people waiting longer and longer to have their cases heard, which means that cases are being dropped and people are let free when they shouldn't be. And also lives are just on pause while they sort of wait for the the very slow creaking cogs of the justice system to, to go into action. At the same time, you've got a government that wants to be really hard line. Like just in the last couple of weeks, we've had tougher penalties for people with zombie knives. We've made um, nitrous oxide illegal. So that's got a jail sentence attached to it. Jail sentences for things like protesting. I wouldn't say low level crimes, but crimes where you're not necessarily sure that a a custodial sentence a couple of years ago would have been appropriate. So you're increasing the demand, as it were, for prison uh, services, if you could call it that, while at the same time cutting the supply and the result is not great. One of the things I saw developing when I was covering this beat in the early 2010s was that we have this world-class civil justice system. So if you want to sue someone, you should absolutely come to London to do it because it has the best courts, has a wonderful building called the Rolls Building, which was built especially to attract foreign, you know, cases and and judges, you know, and that's incredibly uh, well supported. And of course, the lawyers working in that field earn tons and tons of money. But it's the criminal side that has been completely run down, isn't it? I mean, criminal barristers, the junior ones anyway, if you work out all the work that they do and cost it out, are kind of on below minimum wage. And in terms of the courts, we sold off a lot of the court estate, which we're now leasing back, which is kind of bizarre. There's a there's a courtroom in, I think it's near Southwark, which they sold off, the government sold off, which is now used as a film set where they film court cases, <laughs> which I think kind of summarises this in a nutshell, doesn't it? Mm. And we know Keir Starmer must care about this. He does care about this because he's a former director of public prosecutions. Is, is he? He's never mentioned that. <laughs> he is. Yeah, I know. But you know that he—he he, if anybody knows what state you know and, and the justice system is in, it's Keir Starmer. And we know the hard line that he takes to matching the Tories, you know, policy by policy in terms of toughness. And we know why he does that because that's what Labour is doing at the moment. But how do you think the justice system will change under Labour? Will it change under Labour? I think Labour are walking a very, very difficult line because, as you say, they are taking very tough lines on crime. In fact, crime is one of the issues that Keir Starmer is focusing on that he thinks will help him win an election because, look, the Conservatives have messed it up. Labour can can step in. Um, and even on things where you would expect Labour to have a kind of slightly softer more realistic stance, like on drugs policy. He's been very, very hard line on that. But where's he going to find the funding from? Labour have also been very reluctant to make any kind of spending commitments. I looked this up. I looked up our prison population and we're not as bad sort of on a per capita basis. We're not as bad as the US, which is kind of in a category all of its own. But compared to France, Germany, Italy, like before you even get into the Nordic countries, we incarcerate a much higher proportion of our population than much of Europe does. And somebody needs to come along and go actually prison isn't necessarily the best place always for people if you want a society where rehabilitation is possible, people can get their lives back. And also it's really expensive. It's like more expensive than Eton, I think, to send someone to prison for a year. But I don't see that person being Keir Starmer, not in the not in the present climate. Well, I'll ask you a bit about that later on and whether there's any chance that we could, <laughs> you know, have a Nordic style prison policy. But mm. let's, let's get into that later. Matt, Many Britons have never seen the inside of a prison and they obviously hope that they never will. But is this a bit like crumbly concrete, a problem that the insiders know about, 
but which only gets the media's attention when people feel personally at risk. In other words, when a terror suspect is on the run. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think that's the problem with the justice system, as Rachel said, is that most of us don't encounter it in our day-to-day lives. And you have to kind of read about it and hear about it. And then you obviously just take whichever side sort of fits your prior prejudices in most ways. And so people who like to read The Guardian will read about you know, the secret barrister and the problems that they're in the justice system. But the reality is most people who don't read The Guardian um, see just prisons uh, are too soft or people are being escaping or whatever. And I was thinking about this. You know, I've never been to prison. I've never been to a prison. Uh, I don't think I know many people who've been to prison, which makes me about as qualified as the last seven prisons ministers have been when they took over the job. Because um, Rory Stewart said when he took over the job of prisons minister, He had also never been to a prison, didn't know any prisoners. And so it's this problem of because we have a system where all these ministers come in and come out, there's apparently been seven prisons ministers since 2019, uh, including, I just looked this up, um, Lucy Fraser, who was minister for prisons for six days between 10... Uh, 10th and the 16th of September 2021. Um, I suspect she didn't have a great impact. Um, And I think that's the problem that... If we, you know, the general public don't really care that much because they, we never spend any time there and we don't really think about it. And then obviously the ministers don't care that much because they keep being moved on. I talked to Penelope Gibbs, who's a campaigner in this area. She works for a, a, a charity called Transform Justice for a bunker recently. And she was saying this pretty much the same with magistrates, who, of course, are responsible for sending quite a lot of people to prison, albeit for fairly short sentences. But, you know, many of them have never been in a prison mm. before. And part of their training is supposed to involve going to a prison, but it doesn't always, or it involves a very kind of nice visit with just the governor and, you know, not actually seeing what it's like inside a cell. Um, and, and that is a real problem because when you don't see what prison is like, then you have less compunction about sending people there, mm. which uh, it struck me as a really, really important point that you kind of need to know what it's like to know. But there's constant pressure from the media for longer sentences. And after the Lucy Letby conviction, Rachel mentioned some other things that are just about to be made illegal as well. But this is, we're soon to have a new offence of not attending your sentencing hearing. And that will attract an even longer prison term than you would have had already. What would it take to defy that desire that we have to lock them up and throw away the key? They're the kind of automatic thing that home secretaries have where there's a problem, lengthen the sentence. It's just such an easy thing to say, isn't it? It's to say um, harsher sentences, despite the fact that reoffending rates are incredibly high. Mm. Um, apparently 45% of all individuals reoffend and 61% of those who serve a sentence of less than 12 months. So short sentences are incredibly disruptive on people's lives. They don't get to do any rehabilitation in prison. The education in prison is very poor, um, particularly if you're doing a short sentence. You're just sort of shoved away for a few months and then you, you're you sort of released back into the public um, space. Often people's relationships are broken down, their uh, financial situation is terrible, they don't really know where to live. And so there's that kind of sort of, um, yeah, cascade effect. And obviously systems that are more focused on rehabilitation and um, work in the community and things have been shown to be much more effective. But it would require, I think, a very strong political uh, voice to make that case. And it would require, I think not just that, it would also require people just in in general accepting that prison is not something that works and it would you know 
things like um, dramas and uh, series set in prison or documentaries in prison or some way. You know, I think often that can be a way to kind of um, make the public sort of take notice. Uh, but yeah, when you've got a predominantly right wing press that keeps banging the drum that lock them up, then that's quite a hard, uh, hard thing to deal with. Rachel, there are more women going to jail. Why? I will come on to that question in a minute, but I just wanted to say something about seeing the inside of prisons. And I wanted to mention Shirley Williams, the great Labour politician, because when she was, I think, prison minister, she she did. She said, I can't do this job without seeing inside of a prison. So she went to Holloway prison, Holloway Williams prison, which is actually very close to where I used to live, and said, lock me up for two weeks. Uh, oh, and... Wow. Um, they said, what do you want to be charged for? And she goes, well, what are, what are most women charged for? And they said prostitution. And she was like, right, give me a prostitution charge. And she spent two two weeks inside Holloway Prison seeing it from the inside. And that gave her the really, really valuable perspective. And I saw Rory Stewart a couple of years ago saying that actually he, he would have wanted to do that, but he wasn't allowed to. I mean, he would say that, wouldn't he? <laughs> um, but that that kind of tells you two things. One thing about the perspective you get from inside and two, what are most women in prison for? Um, it tends to be drugs, crimes and things associated with drugs, sex work, um, abuse. Over half of women in prison have been victims themselves of, of domestic abuse. Um, but the reason that a prison population for women is expected to rise is partly like a result of COVID and the financial insecurity and the rise in mental health challenges. And I don't think that's just true for women. I think that's true sort of across society that if you have people who are already very, very vulnerable and then they lose their income source, they lose their stability and their mental health worsens, unfortunately, you're going to see a rise in, in crime. Um, Again, there are all sorts of things that we could do that would be much, much more cost effective than putting people, particularly women, in prison because if you send them to prison, then you've got their children who go into care and then have dramatically worsened life prospects as well. Like If you can support people who are in poverty and have issues with drug abuse and, and mental health before they get to the point of going into prison, it saves you so much money later on. But again, it's one of those things where... It's very difficult to make the case for funding for those things, whereas it's easier to kind of say, yes, you commit a crime and we'll send you to prison and if and you should you should know better and if you don't we'll lengthen the sentence, which costs more later on. Okay. Fundamentally really comes down to what does what is prison for? And of course it's got a number of different functions. I mean there's punishment, obviously, there's keeping dangerous criminals away from the public. It's and, and then there's the idea that it might be for a rehabilitation and to force people to think about their crimes so they don't do them again, which is also... But that, that seems to be the the real problem, isn't it? What do we want prison to do? Do we even know? I think there are three aims that you have for prison. One is punishment, one is rehabilitation, and one is a deterrent so that people don't commit crimes. And I've heard campaigners in this area and, and policy researchers go, you, you can't really do all three. You, the most you can hope for is two out of three. And even then, you've got to sort of really focus on one. And in this country, we seem to be focusing very, very, very much on punishment, not on deterrent, because as Matt said, like re-offending rates are really high, and not on rehabilitation. And Labour's thing, Tony Blair's thing, which he, I think, first announced in the New Statesman when he was opposition leader, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, was let's look at the circumstances that cause people out of 
desperation or poor choices into this lifestyle. Let's kind of tackle that. And they, Keir Starmer's Labour did have a similar line now. They had, uh, I can't, oh God, I can't remember what they all are, but one of them was prevention and that as a focus. But again, like it's, it's much easier to just dismiss it as more people in prison and they won't commit crimes than it is to look at the very difficult social reasons why people do end up committing crimes. But isn't prevention, that's always the thing that's the easier or rather would be the better thing to do in the same way with health, that yeah. it's much easier to prevent people getting ill than it is to fix them later. But that's much harder to get people to spend money on because it's not obvious and you don't get the credit for it. And if you build 10 new hospitals, that means something. If you invest in some healthy eating scheme, that's quite hard to get the credit for. Yeah, pretty much exactly that. Uh, and just as you've seen, the NHS come under huge strain because loads of services were cut that were seen as kind of nice to have services. And actually, they helped prevent people develop the kind of health conditions that then that they had to go to hospital. And the NHS is sort of mopping up the the, the result of that. I think the, the prison estate is kind of doing the same thing. Mm. A lot of problems that would have been dealt with in the community by education, by social services, by that kind of community engagement are now being dealt with in the prison estate, except unlike the NHS, it's had its funding cut. Mm. It's, it's almost like a cliche that there needs to be more youth centres and things like that. But that is but that is the case, that these kind of places do, for a very um, reasonable amount of money, can solve a lot of these problems before they start. Yeah, I don't think it can solve everything. I think, no. <laughs> I think like there definitely are some individuals who really are quite dangerous and, and need to be behind bars. But you could focus on those more if you weren't distracted by the vast crowds of people who are kind of committing crimes out of poverty and desperation and lack of alternative options. Here's a bit of a thought experiment. What if a new Labour government surprised us all, Keir Starmer took us all, took, took our breath away and said he was going to send fewer people to jail, he was going to build more open prisons, use other other punishments instead as you said, the kind of Nordic model of justice rather than the current one we have. Is that even thinkable? Could anyone do that in this country? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a lovely thought experiment. Um, but I just think about the fact that if you poll the British public now, you get still maybe not a majority, but very, very high numbers of people who would quite like to bring back hanging. Mm -hmm. I think there's something in our cultural DNA that wants to be very hard line. And I actually think it would probably be easier for a conservative government to do criminal justice reform than it would a Labour one in the same way that it's probably easier for a Labour government to do healthcare reform. Because the second Keir Starmer even says like, I don't know, let's have slightly shorter sentences for first time offenders, because all the data has said that that is you know, cost-effective and beneficial, you can just imagine all of the tabloid newspapers going, you know, Keir Starmer, soft on crime, wants your shoplifter to 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 go free. Um, and it's such, a, it's such a potent issue for Labour at the moment. They're focusing on the police not investigating crimes and um, antisocial behaviour and this idea that people have, which I think is true, that you kind of walk down the street and it does feel a little bit like, civilised society is crumbling and they're like we can fix that by being more tough and it's like it does need fixing but that's not really going to help I don't know are you more, are you more optimistic 
Um, no, uh, <laughs> never. <laughs> Though very rarely am I more optimistic. Um, no, I mean, I think, I, but I think you're right. I think it, it could happen, but it would need someone with real political vision and a lot of political capital to spend on it. And I feel like there are so many other issues that currently need a lot of political capital spending on them that, sadly, justice and particularly prisons and particularly offender management and all those sorts of things feel like they're rarely going to take top priority. Now, imagine setting a comedy series inside a British prison in 2023. It would just seem tasteless, wouldn't it? Tasteless and probably very depressing. Yet during the 1970s, the BBC did exactly that. And Porridge, which starred Ronnie Barker, was immensely popular. It's often cited as one of the best sitcoms ever. Because we've got Matt Green with us this week, who's of course a comedian, we wanted to talk about what it's like to make political comedy in miserable times. Where can you find the humour? Where's the levity? What can you find that will make people laugh despite it all? Matt, do you think people want to laugh about the state we're in? Definitely, yeah. Um, I think comedy often works almost in uh, reverse with the economy, that if the economy if the economy is doing well, people aren't that bothered about comedy and vice versa. And um, in the recessions, comedy always booms. Uh, alternative comedy came out of the sort of early 80s recessions and um, and the sort of bleakness of politics uh, at that time. Comedy thrives in in every in every space where it's not meant to. I think it's one of those things that just you can never find a place where people haven't been trying to crack jokes, even if even if they've been pretty bleak. I mean, there are brilliant lists of jokes about that people used to talk about in Soviet Russia or even Nazi Germany, places like that, where you think, well, yes, if anyone had said one of these jokes out loud, they would have been potentially put in prison or worse. But they still were being said, they're still being talked about because comedy is, um, well, particularly humour, if you separate them out, I guess. Um, comedy, I suppose, is the sort of professional version of it. And humour is just is natural. That's something that we all try and do um, when things are bad. But I think in terms of political comedy, it is a strange time at the moment. There's a lot of people doing political comedy online, um, like myself. Um, and I think lockdown um, and COVID meant that people like me and many others had quite a lot more time on our hands um, at home to make things. So there's quite a lot more of that sort of homemade political stuff happening. And also, we're obviously living in a very sort of polarised world and therefore um, there's a lot of mad characters. <laughs> there's, you know, particularly in the last two or three years, there's been, you know, obviously Johnson and Nadine Doris and um, uh, and, and many, many, and Liz Truss, obviously, and many more who are, who almost feel overwritten. As a, as a comedian, you're almost like, could you just take it down a notch? Because you're saying stuff that's so mad, it's quite hard to satirise now. Yeah. Like, how do you... And I, I do find myself a lot um, find you know finding literally I just literally quote what people have said and then find ways of sort of putting it more into a sketch format and put, adding extra jokes and often the bits that I have literally quoted are the most bizarre bits in the in the video. Yeah, it's true. These these larger than life characters like Johnson. It's hard, isn't it, to satirise? And maybe the answer is to make a new character, like Rosie Holt did with her, you know, infamous, mm. incredibly stupid Tory MP 
videos. Is is that something that is that a route that you've you've kind of gone down or? Yeah, I mean, I, I basically have a sort of a, a Tory minister character that I play in various forms. And if I'm satirising a specific person, then I'll kind of try and look for their vocal tics and things. I'm not an impressionist at all, so I don't I don't try and sound like them. Um, but I will throw things in, like Chris Philp, God bless him, has a, a swallow that he does in every interview, which is so noticeable and so this kind of thing that whenever he's slightly stressed, he gets very, and it obviously and it's happened to me, you know, you get a dry mouth, but it, it happens so much with him that whenever he does an interview, I'm like, right, there's definitely, a, I can definitely make some fun out of that. And there are other people who have similar sort of issues, uh, which you can sort of have fun with. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think I've realised that for me, pers- yeah, for me, it's more about satirising the whole government at, at, at once. So I'm kind of finding out things that are happening, putting them into the voice of the uh, the Tory minister character and um, and just having fun with it. Rachel, do you ever laugh about politics? <laughs> I love watching and listening to political comedy, although the idea of doing it absolutely terrifies me. I have nothing but admiration for Matt. I did one episode of the News Quiz as the straight woman, as the journalist, and it was good fun, but it was the most stressful experience of my life. That absolutely by far the hardest bit of radio I've done because I think just what you said, I don't know how you can make what's currently happening more absurd and surreal than it is. And I watch things... I mean, it's very difficult. I have tried rewatching the thick of it, and I think, I think even um, Amanda Iannucci, who created it, has has said you couldn't really do it now because it does feel like that is the reality. And maybe that was always the reality, but we've got kind of with social media, and you've got more leaks coming out, and you can actually see the inner workings of government. Maybe we don't want to see the inner workings of government. Maybe it's the whole, you don't want to see how the sausage gets made. You don't want to see how incompetent they are. But, you know, stuff like the crumbling concrete, when it turned out that, you know, who knew about this? We did. We told you. Ah, is there anyone else we can blame for it? No, like if that was written into a plot, that's before you get to the the Boris Johnson stuff or the, you know, Nadine Doris saying that posh boys have lied to her and that's why she hasn't been put in the House of Lords. I I totally get what you mean when you say, you know, could they just dial it back (laughs) a little bit? But I think people need to laugh. And I also think that comedy is a way to process what is going on and sometimes you don't fully as a as a audience member as a listener or a watcher you don't fully get how absurd something is until you see someone satirize it and go okay i know that's over the top but i also know what 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 has happened and the sort of there is truth behind that that is really powerful i think when i'm making videos quite often what i do is i i start from the point of view of like this is a thing that's actually been said or done. And then I try to think, okay, what do they actually mean by that though? What's the what's the underlying perspective? And then put that in the thing as well. And so hopefully I'm doing slightly more than just reporting. I'm sort of reporting and analyzing kind of at the same time. It's lovely. I do get quite a lot of messages from people saying, Oh, thank you, you've you've helped me sort of stay sane or, you know, this is you've um yeah, you've you've cheered me up on a difficult day. And that's obviously what I'm always trying to do. But there are there is always a little part of me thinking, I'm not sure sanity's the correct response now. <laughs> there are times where I think am I might you know, satire is often criticized for 
humanizing um, or sort of defanging bad things that if I do a joke about Suella Braverman, does that mean that people laughing at her rather than being offended by her? And I don't know. I think you can sort of argue about that either way. But there is a danger, I think, that people sit back and think, well, if they're being laughed about, then they're not maybe as bad as they look. Um, I think, And I think that's something that Trump definitely benefited from, particularly in his first run, I think probably less so now. But there was a sort of sense in which people could laugh at him and find him amusing. And so therefore, perhaps they took him less seriously. And when he then became president, people were like, sort of shocked that he was not just a funny character, but there was a some something horrible happening as you know, underneath as well. Brexit has obviously destroyed our relationship with Europe to a large extent. But last week, those who'd like to see a closer relationship had a bit of a fillip with the news that Britain is rejoining the Horizons Science Research Programme. Hooray. Rachel, in a nutshell, what does Horizon do? It funds science. Yeah. Do you want a slightly longer answer? <laughs> yeah, please. Uh, it's a kind of collaborative scientific programme uh, where scientists from across Europe and, and now the, the UK, they pool funding and then the each, co- each country contributes funding and then the centre um, assigns it to, to various projects and it is it allows scientists uh, across Europe to, to collaborate. And it, like prior to Brexit, we were a really key part of it. Like we were, the UK was not just um, a member, but was kind of a leading member and had a lot of influence over what projects got funded. And we wanted to cut all ties with Europe. So, you know, we, we came out of it and we've been out of it for coming up to, to three years and, and now we're going back in. So, yay, but I didn't see anyone during the EU referendum being like, vote, leave, stop collaborating with European scientists. Like that wasn't a thing that was, I think, integral to the to the leave campaign. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe some people voted leave because they were like, those pesky EU scientists, I don't want to work with them. No, well, we didn't hear anything about Northern Ireland either. And well, why didn't we rejoin it earlier? <laughs> Because of Northern Ireland, essentially, mm. it was like the, the EU didn't want us back while the the Northern Ireland issue was unresolved. And this is like for some for some balance. Um, this is one of the things that I think Rishi Sunak has actually done really well by resolving the the issues over Northern Ireland and the Northern Ireland Protocol, the Windsor Framework earlier this year, and just like getting EU officials and negotiators to talk to us like grown-ups and to say like come on it's a science program you benefit from having us as part of it we'd quite like to join it can we not be like children you can't play with my science program <laughs> um and they agreed after the sheer childishness of the boris johnson era when i think just the level of insults flying around the idea that like anytime anything went wrong in britain it was like blame the eu blame the the french as if they couldn't hear us and then they went well fine don't join them We're like no no, no no that was for our newspapers that wasn't for you guys to hear and i think Rishi Sunak managing to resolve that and negotiate grown up to grown up has actually been really positive it's just a shame that it's taken 3 years uh, is this unalloyed good news or are there some caveats? I mean, it's definitely good news that we are joining as opposed to not joining. The fact that it's taken that long, I think, um, it has done real, real damage to Britain's scientific community. And let's like not forget that science and tech and innovation is like 
firstly, one of the things that Britain excels at on, on the world stage, the thing that we're really good at. And also one of the things that Rishi Sunak is really interested in and has said is going to be one of the drivers to get us out of this economic slump. So we've, we've lost all that time. We've lost a huge amount in terms of relationships, like scientific projects that didn't go ahead, researchers at British universities who weren't included in projects for, for three years because they weren't part of the programme and because uh, the projects that were going on, they didn't want to work with the British because it was too difficult. The other thing that Horizon did that was great was it was about scientists from different countries working together and often like moving countries to to work on projects together. And we're back in the programme, but we're not back in free movement. And again, like too many really highly accomplished scientists coming to Britain wasn't the key immigration issue that people were concerned about in 2016. If you poll the public and you go, would you like some top scientists to come here and do amazing research for Britain? Generally, they don't go, well, not if they're French. Um, but I'm not sure about that. You don't think so? No, no. I, think, I, I think there'd be a fairly big selection of people who go, not if they're French. Not sadly. if they're French. Okay. Yeah. But what if, what if they're German? Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> There's a hierarchy of scientists that will Swedish. accept. It's probably okay. <laughs> yeah, I think Nordics are fine. Nordic, Nord, Nordics are fine. Fine. But basically, um, we have like lost the ability to collaborate and bring talented, really talented, high-skilled people um, mm. to this country because we're so fixated on immigration. And that's really sad, but it's also kind of pretty dire from a productivity standpoint as yeah. well. I mean, we still make it quite hard, don't we, to uh, for their spouses, for example, to come here. We force them to pay a large amount of money and uh, uh, a large fund for the NHS and all that kind of thing. It's quite difficult now after free movement. Yeah, and to bring dependents as well. And if you're talking about people who are kind of at the top of their career, like they will have families. Mm. And that's a good thing. Um, but it's kind of like the, the the Home Office fixating on making it as difficult as possible to get a British visa, regardless of your circumstances, versus the departments that deal with business and trade and science and tech going, why can't we get the people that we need? And you're like, just talk to each other. <laughs> but that's the problem with being so focused on net migration figures, isn't it? That they can stop certain people who they really it would really benefit us to come in, but it's quite easy to stop them coming in. So they can definitely make that small reduction, whereas focusing on other sectors um, and obviously small boats and things is much harder. Um, so from their point of view, well, every tiny little you know person that doesn't come in, we can um, claim as a victory, which is mad. You get awful cases of like people getting jobs and not being able to get visas for their infant children to come over. And you're just like, you have not thought this through at all, unless what you really want is for them not to come over at all, in which case just accept that you're going to lose the, the talent. But Horizon, good thing. Injecting some positivity there. Yes. <laughs> Matt, it does feel like we've moved on from the perfidious EU phase a bit. And we, we are now capable of having a more mature relationship with Brussels. And given this deal seems to have been done without too much angst from Brexiteers who were kind of chuntering away in the Telegraph a bit, but that's as far as it seems to be going. Has the tide turned enough for us to toy with, say, rejoining the customs union? Something like that? I would love to say yes. I sort of think maybe any word with any word with the re prefix is always going to be a problem yeah. at the moment. That um, part of the reason why I think 
although it has been, it clearly is rejoining Horizon, but the government has been very clear that it's not rejoining. We now have a bespoke deal for Horizon, which is different from what we had before, and it's our own deal. And part of the deal, as we've said, is about not having freedom of movement. So it's a bespoke worse deal, but it is at least a bespoke deal. And I sort of feel like maybe customs union membership would be possible if we could sell it as a bespoke deal on tariffs and a a bespoke deal on trade barriers and a bespoke deal on quotas and just sell it like that. So it becomes, I do think that that's the thing with um, rejoining the EU. Mm. It's going to have to be done in a very slow, boring, kind of quite administrative, bureaucratic way. And every little moment of it is going to have to feel quite dull so that nobody goes, hang on, is this rejoining the EU (laughs) by stealth? Um, But then it might work and then we might slowly claw back some of the benefits that we had before. It won't be the same and there'll be lots of problems uh, and things like freedom of movement feels like a real red line for, for everybody in politics at the moment. But I think it's possible. I think you're absolutely right on making it as boring as possible. Like rejoining the EU, no. How about closer collaboration on a technical level to deal with tariff issues as outlined in paragraphs yeah. <laughs> 6 through 17 of this really boring EU document stamp it with a tick 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 yeah we're doing this boring trade thing it's not it's not really interesting like your male readers won't won't want to know about yeah, it yeah. improving phytosanitary arrangements and regulations and nobody really knows what that means anyway who doesn't work in that industry and yeah it's really important but yeah. those things yeah i do th- i think it's a slow process of just nibbling away at it. And I think that might, yeah, there's a chance that that could have a positive outcome. There was a bit of outrage at the weekend over people (laughs) waving EU flags at the last night of the proms and a suggestion that the BBC should not have allowed this. I was was quite surprised at that because I did actually get a breaking news alert from the BBC at one point (laughs) urging me to tune in right now because they were about to sing Royal Britannia and I thought, okay, you're really covering your backs here, guys. But why does this mere gesture, you know, something which is... You know, at best poignant, at worst really quite sad in a way. Why, why does it seem to infuriate some Brexiters to see people exerting their right to wave a small paper flag? Well, I think it's, it's like a triple threat, isn't it? Because it's sort of posh people who like music, classical music, London and the BBC. So it's the three things that Brexiteers you know, famously hate, even though they are all those three things often. Um, I also think it just shows the fragility of their position. It's a bit like what we were talking about earlier about how humour can help you through dark times. It's, 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 I feel like it's partly people celebrating being, um, feeling European and wanting to celebrate the EU and the Council of Europe and all that sort of thing. But it is also a little bit taking the piss, I think. I think it's a little bit people going, this is quite funny. It's quite funny waving an EU flag um, at the last night of the proms. There's a sort of mm. British sort of silliness about it, I yeah. think, and, and, and anti-establishmentism, which is ironic because they're always going on about being anti-establishment. But it shows that they they feel very fragile about it. And any mockery, any suggestion that they don't have the, the, the support of everybody is somehow jumped on as being sort of a, a terrible thing. Yeah, I think it's quite, I like it. I think it's funny. I mean, it's annoying all the right people. Richard Tice, the leader of Reform UK, said on, uh, said on Twitter, and it was picked up by The Express, that it should be banned, you know, the EU flag should be banned. 
Uh, but there is a there is a group doing it. There is a specific group called Thank EU for the Music. Lovely stuff. And they're funded by donations apparently. And so people every year they they give out EU flags. But no one no one's forced to take them in. If they only take them in if they want to. And I think it's fun. It's it's so funny how it's the same people who are banging on about the importance of free speech. Mm-hmm. Um, cancel culture. Cancel culture. <laughs> yeah. Who. Um, Every type of protest that you can imagine is the wrong thing. If you're gluing yourself to things, that's bad. If you are walking too slowly, that's bad. You're disrupting people's day. You're disrupting the cricket. You're disrupting Wimbledon or whatever. And all of those things, you can kind of go, okay, some of that stuff is like genuinely disruptive. I don't agree necessarily that it should be banned, but I can see where you're coming from. You're waving a flag and I have to look at it. I mean, yeah. how <laughs> fragile, how how snowflakey do you have to be to get that upset by somebody waving a flag? It is the most like softest, most peaceful, least disruptive type of protest Absolutely. imaginable. But it's just seeing it is is triggering. And also they, they 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 went on and on about Rule Britannia being the song that oh well there was various, you know, tweets saying, I wonder what happened during Rule Britannia. And of course I think what was interesting about it is people still sang Rule Britannia with all their gusto and but it just it was an in, it was a fun sort of juxtaposition of mm. we've got this Rule Britannia song which Lots of people think is really important and powerful, but also is from a different era and isn't really what our country is about anymore. The lyrics of Royal Britannia are, are crazy. I mean, the idea of actually... calling you know Britons shall never be slaves and yes. sort of somehow Britannia referring rules that. the waves. What? Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's 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 lud- it's it's just history, but it's nostalgia. Yeah, it's nostalgia, and yeah. so the EU, in a way, I almost feel like we're, it's nostalgia for the Remain supporters. You know, they're saying we we we're waving our flags for this. This is what we used to enjoy doing. So, you know. <laughs> Rachel, this is back to a bit of a sort of trade wonkery that we were talking about earlier. But the government is hoping that it can defer EU tariffs on EV batteries, uh, which are manufactured in the UK. And this is quite a big deal. Those tariffs were agreed as part of Boris Johnson's Brexit deal. Why does the government think that it can do this? Well, Germany wants it. Yeah, um, and this is to do Hang with on, is this German car manufacturers. Is it finally happening that German car manufacturers are making a good deal for Britain? Because that was always the thing, wasn't it? <laughs> that, like German car manufacturers, they're, they're going to be the people who. Um... It's to, it's it's to do with. Um whether the EU and the UK can produce enough batteries of their own or if mm. they have to import them. And you've got this setup where EU rules are kind of in um, opposition to other EU parts of the agenda, like um, electric cars and, and net zero and, and the green agenda and stuff. So it's, it's 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 kind of the EU arguing with itself, as the EU does a fair amount. It hasn't stopped doing that just because we left, but it's kind of... I think another reminder of just how unprepared the UK still is for all the things that Boris Johnson agreed that he would do. And the questions over tariffs for EU batteries, but also like EU products in general, we're kind of saying we, we, we don't want to impose those tariffs because actually it will hit our economy more, which it will, which was exactly as predicted hmm. when Boris Johnson was negotiating that deal. And indeed, when the referendum campaign was, was underway... I kind of think, to go back to sort of Sunak and the pragmatism uh, like uh, argument, Sunak, Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer's Brexit positions are actually really similar, um, both of which are like, let's not talk about Brexit because we know it's a disaster. We can't say it's a disaster because in, in Sunak's case, the Conservative Party and in um, Starmer's case, the, the country don't want to hear it and we just can't do that. So let's edge as 
closer as we possibly can without talking about it. And I've said before, like if Brexit was a divorce, we're not going to get remarried. That's the reword again. We're heading towards a friends with benefits kind of relationship. That's what they're trying to do. Like it's it's not official or anything. We're just we're just going to talk nicely to you now. And it does seem to be working. It's like the one thing that Rishi Sunak is doing and he won't get any credit for it. And I think that's very, very funny. And yet for the sort of hardcore Brexiteers, what they want is to be on Tinder. Yeah. And just look in, play in the fields. Well, with America, with Australia, with with, with um, I- India and actually America and Australia don't don't want us. Yeah, they're no. not interested. They're no. swiping. They're swiping, right. yeah. They don't. But I mean, speaking of India, what is the situation with a trade deal with India? Because Rishi Sunak got a very warm welcome at the G20 in India at the weekend. But is a deal in any way imminent? Well, it comes back to immigration and visas, right? And that, like the one thing that India really, really wants from a trade deal is relaxation of, of visas so more Indian nationals can come live and work in the UK, which actually was mentioned during the referendum campaign. That hmm. was that was something that was talked about. Like if we get EU migration down, we can increase migration from other countries. And Rishi Sunak's quite on board with that. Um, especially because you look at the the kind of skill set that the people that he's he's talking about have, and then you you go back to the Home Office and Swella Braverman, who's like, Indian students are overstaying their visas, and that is the entire problem with our migration policy. And again, it's like you you need to have a conversation. The Conservative Party needs to have a really honest conversation with itself about what it's trying to do because any kind of trade deal with India is, is going to have to involve something on visas. And if you don't want that, fine, don't have it. But then don't talk about all of the amazing free trade deals that we can get post-Brexit. Matt, while many of us would like to rejoin, uh, it's not really on the EU's agenda. And as you say, the rejoin word is a bit toxic. Um, they're actually more interested in expanding. Uh, which countries could join the EU in the next decade or so? Well, apparently the, the countries that are um, already... Um, they already have candidate status, are the Western Balkans, basically. So that's Albania, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Montenegro, North Macedonia and Serbia. They've all got various different levels of candidate status. Some of them uh, are already in negotiation. Kosovo submitted its application only very recently in December 2022. And of course, the other big one is Ukraine. And that's it feels like that was for sort of moral and political reasons that that first came in uh, as as an option so quickly. And yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, as Rachel said, the the EU has lots of uh, different opinions on this, and some countries and some foreign ministers are very keen for this to happen quickly. But there are huge challenges, um, not least on trade, agriculture. Ukraine's grain market alone would cause a huge uh, influx of grain into the EU market. Already, some countries like Poland have banned exports from Ukraine, so uh, banned grain exports particularly. So it it, it does feel like. There's a lot to, 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 to sort of be worked out. And obviously, crucially, it would also involve loads of referendums <laughs> in various countries. Uh, and I sort of feel like referendums are not sort of um, what people want at the moment, not flavour of the month. I feel like there's been enough that have caused ructions that I suspect the EU are probably going to try and avoid those as far as possible. We've reached the end of the show, so it's time for Escape Routes. Matt, what have you been doing in the past week or so to take your mind off politics as opposed to on politics? Apart from sweltering in the ridiculous heat, um, the TV show I've been watching uh, is uh, Billions. Mm. Do you remember Billions? It's Not a, yet. I, I love it. Um, 
it's sort of like a slightly, it's a bit like Succession, uh, not as good as Succession, but it's um, about a state's attorney and a hedge fund manager uh, who basically butt heads. So it's, and it's Paul Giamatti and Damien Lewis, who are both brilliant. And it's very, very um, fun. It's got sort of big flashy scenes, very chewy dialogue. The, whoever writes it really loves a metaphor, loves a kind of sporting metaphor or a, quite often have to sort of pause it and like Google things. Who is that person? Oh, that's interesting. Um, lots of plots, twists and turns. If you're missing Succession, I would recommend it because it's it's in a similar world, um, but it's very entertaining and it's coming to its final series. It's in its last series now, apparently. Where can we watch it? It's on Now TV. Well, it's on, yeah, HBO. It, what is it actually? No, it's not HBO. It's Showtime, I think, but it's on, yeah, Sky slash Now. Rachel, how about you? So I have been saving this one since the summer because I haven't done a Monday episode. <laughs> um, it's uh, the second season of Good Omens on Amazon mm. Prime, uh, which is for people who didn't watch the first season. This is uh, an adaptation of a book by the wonderful late uh, Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. And the first season is about an angel and a demon who try and avert Armageddon, essentially. And there is no second book, but they have continued to, with the storyline, uh, it's David Tennant and Michael Sheen who have the best on-screen relationship, I think, of any couple ever. Yeah, I would like to see that. Uh, it's also got John Hammond in it. Um, and mm. it's so beautifully done and so clever and witty and poignant and so true to Terry Pratchett, even though it's not his work. And I was really sad because I thought there were 10 episodes and there were only six, um, which is oh. absolutely devastating. So I'm gonna, just going to watch it again from the beginning. <laughs> no, it's, always, it's always disappointing, isn't it, when you get to, you suddenly realise it's all ending faster than you want it to on, on Netflix or whatever. I wasn't ready. No. So no. You, st- you, you finish a book slowly, like the last few pages, you slow down. Mm, exactly. Um, well, I went to the theatre on Saturday night, which was nice because the National Theatre is very well air-conditioned, which was perfect. Uh, and I saw Lucy Preble's uh, The Effect, the revival of that, which is you know, not an uplifting um, evening, but it is, um, yeah, it's what you might call thought-provoking. And it's nor is it cathartic. You know, it's not like when I saw Othello recently and, you know, after that, you feel quite kind of, yeah, I feel like... A release. You don't feel that at the end of, of, of the effect. You go out and you sort of lean over the Thames and you start talking about antidepressants and, 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 and suicide and stuff. So, But nonetheless, I do recommend it. And I'm, I'm sure it will be available around the country as well on these new National Theatre live cinema things that they do now. So if you have the chance to see it, prepare yourself. Uh, but it's worth it. I'm, I'm really impressed with you because I can't watch depressing theatre. It's, anymore. It's really hard. I mean, the 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 program is full of warnings, and they actually have mental health uh, assistants in you know it's, oh uh, in the theatre who are ready to help you if you feel uh, too too upset at the end. And I was a bit mm, whatever about that, but actually, I could see completely why they did that at the end because it is a very traumatic piece of work. You are a braver woman than I am. <laughs> And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. Thanks for listening to Oh God, What Now? See you next time. 